Hello and welcome to Something in Media, a show that tells the story of successful people in the world of media and what it takes to make it to the very top. I'm Dave Maguire. In this episode, we welcome a superstar in the world of television, James Longman, who until recently guided The Late Late Show with James Corden to become one of the most popular TV shows on the planet. You're spinning so many plates and you're dealing with, you know, the host of the show, you're dealing with a celebrity, you're dealing with their agents, you're dealing with someone else's agents, you're dealing with your team and execs, and, you know, you're in the middle of this kind of storm. We've all heard of Carpool Karaoke, right? Well, if you haven't, I mean, where have you been? It's an amazing format and it's just one of the biggest things on TV right now. In it, James Corden interviews stars, usually pop stars, in his car under the premise that he's driving him and them to work and they sing along. The format came out of the brains of the producers of The Late Late Show with James Corden, in which James Longman played a very significant role. As you'll hear long before James set out his stall in LA, except producing global superstars like Tom Cruise, Kerry Washington, Natalie Portman, John Legend, Paul McCartney, the list literally goes on and on and on and on. James followed his passion for old films, beginning his career as a runner on a show called The Ozone, soon after finishing a media course at Sunderland University. James then went on to work at MTV, working his way up from work experience to leading large productions with some of the biggest presenters and bands in the world. As the years progressed, James realised that he thrived working on comedy-based shows and his road to the heights of The Late Late Show was set. James often admits that he's most comfortable behind the camera and a lot of his early success was down to luck because he lived in London. And that's where we start James's story. I mean, my dad was initially a chemist and then he kind of became a... He run a shop on the Barking Road, which is near West Ham. All roads lead back to West Ham <laughs> on the Barking Road. He kind of did whatever he needed to get by. So I think I get my work ethic from my, my dad. And my family, no one was in the media particularly. From Chigwell School, the route generally was to go into the city. Like my brothers, who's older than me, all of his year went into the city. Uh, and most of people went into finance... Our year was a little bit different, a little bit more, I guess, less money orientated and a bit more, I won't say dream orientated, but that sounds ridiculous. Maybe a bit more useless. <laughs> that might make more sense. We're all a little bit like, oh, we don't know what we want to do. I knew that I always liked film and I always liked TV. Uh, and the things I used to do the most was watch old films. And I used to play football. They're two things I did the most. What, what kind of old films did you used to watch? I'd watch, I'm a big horror fan now, so I used to watch horror films, but I always, I always liked Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and kind of the old school Hollywood stars. And then in the 80s as well, I used to watch like lots of those kind of, they don't do so much now, um, but kind of those cheap, buzzy, Hollywood, blockbuster-y type films that were, didn't have massive kind of plots, but always were fun and silly and that kind of world. I, was, I kind of watched as much as I could of everything because I always thought that would be an amazing thing to do to work in film or be a footballer. And I realised I wouldn't be a footballer. <laughs> There's still time. And still I don't work in film. So uh, <laughs> neither to come true. But I just liked the creative side. I was always quite creative. I liked English and writing and drama and that kind of side. At some stage I would have wanted to be an actor. At some stage I would have wanted to be a TV presenter. But I'm most comfortable behind camera, which is where I ended up. Yeah. So when you were at school, say the late 80s, early 90s, were you making things in your spare time? Were you going out and you were trying to imitate the things that you you appreciated and you liked? Not really. I did a lot. I did writing. I wrote a lot of things, but I never really made. I remember my dad bought me a camera um, that I never really used. And uh, he's still annoyed about that. (laughs) Our school wasn't particularly 
it didn't have like a TV department or a media department. It was very kind of old school drama, English, German, French, that kind of world. And it wasn't really until university that I got the chance to make content and be more creative. So let's talk about that. So uh, I, I'm guessing you went to university late 90s. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Mid, mid 90s. So you, you got the grades to go uh, to, was it Sunderland? Sunderland, yeah. Yeah. In the northeast of England. And um, was it a film making course that you did? I did meet. So I, when I finished, when I was finishing my A-levels, I kind of realised I wanted to do something creative in TV or film. I didn't really take notes of where I was going to I just looked for courses that were quite practical because I didn't want to study and write dissertations I wanted to make things get my hands dirty and I applied to the main media schools Bournemouth uh, I think Sheffield was one and they all said no and Sunderland accepted me if I got a certain amount of grades I knew that Sunderland I didn't really know where Sunderland was other than I knew I had a football team I knew it was up north um, and I knew their course was relatively hands-on which is what I wanted to do. So Sunderland accepted me and I got the grades I needed to and went up to Sunderland. How did you find it? Uh, I loved it. I had a great time. I mean, it's cold <laughs> and wet and cold and wet and dark. <laughs> uh, but we had, it was, it was, those three years were real, they made me in many ways, I think, in terms of my confidence and, you know, meeting new people and making new friends and doing new things and having new experiences. I, I, I loved it. And I think, Sunderland, that course is very good for me. Um, we, I had a, a late, uh, wonderful professor called Mike O'Brien, who's, who was a mentor to me and kind of helped me over those three years. And I loved it. And I came out of there thinking I could, you know, do whatever I wanted to in that world. When you were at university, your confidence was rising. You started to create stuff and putting that out into the world at that point. Well, the world was very different. <laughs> And it seems crazy because it's not that long ago, but the world was so different. There was no YouTube. It wasn't really the internet. It wasn't email. Well, you could say it was pre-digital. It was pre-digital. So it was. It seems crazy now. When I left university to get jobs, I wrote letters. Um, Were you like literally handwriting letters? Handwriting letters to people to try and get jobs. And then email was just starting my final year at university. So we had a really basic form of email where I'd email a few people but it was there was no phones like it would I mean you use the word basic earlier it was basic <laughs> but in some ways wonderful because that you know it seems a, a simpler time we made little short films and little short videos um, and little documentaries so we had we tried a little bit of everything did anything stand out not really I think I it was like making things for my friends so I, I'd like to say there was some kind of a J.J. Abrams type world where you'd make stuff and later on become this filmmaker who did these amazing things. No, I think we had fun and it was all quite simple. Uh, and looking back, uh, I don't think anything stood out really. But I worked hard and I liked doing it and I wanted to do it. So that kind of, I, I kind of pulled people along with me as much as I could. So you, you were cutting your teeth in, in the practices of, of creating stories, films, writing, I presume. Yeah getting to that narrative arc and making things that make sense, I suppose, in a more professional way. How much of that time played a part in creating your skill set that you have today, would you say? Or would you say that just kind of gave you a taster in terms of what the real world, quote unquote, is like when you're getting paid to do a job? I guess it gave me a little taste of it. I guess the big thing in my life I always come back to is the idea of teamwork. And I think everything I made at university and since then has been being part of a team. And even I think about like my obsession with football and playing football, it was always being part of a team. And I think that is a, that 
that came out of university a lot. You've got, you've, particularly in TV, you need all of these people around you to help you make something. It's very difficult to do on your own. And I think teamwork is a thing that has stuck with me because it's so important to my field now and it was then and, you know, it will continue to be. Incidentally, do you still play football? I don't. I don't my knees uh, aren't quite what I used to be. I, occasionally I play, occasionally. But I used to play kind of three, four times a week and I, I loved it. Yeah. And I played when I was at MTV, I was on the MTV team uh, and that was a wonderful team and I played my old school. And I th- think about it a lot these days, kind of the best times of your life are playing football and being part of that team. Sometimes when you do shows and you hunker down for these shows, which are incredibly intense and long hours, and you're surrounded by people who share the same vision as you, uh, and it's the same kind of team dynamic. It's like it's like bunker mentality, kind of your one unit, just all pushing towards the same goal. So going back to Sunderland and um, and football in a nice kind of segue, Fullwell seventy three, the production company that you work for that produces The Late Late Show uh, with James Corden. I gather that's named after a Sunderland bit of the stadium or one of the stands is called Fullwell. Yeah, three of the partners, four, in fact, there's five partners, five partners, three of them support Sunderland. Although they're not from the southeast, I can't remember the story behind that. They're from northeast, I can't remember the story behind that. One's Arsenal and Corden is West Ham. Right. So, so yes, yeah, it's, it's based around, named after Sunderland. They're, uh, they've got offices in Islington and the different rooms are kind of, there's a, some named after Sunderland players, some named after West Ham players, some named after Arsenal players. Oh, so did they know that you went to university in Sunderland, you're a West Ham fan? They knew I had worked with them. I'd done a co-production with them when I was at Princess Productions. And I knew... I'd worked with Corden for a few times. And they knew I was West Ham. Funny enough, the football thing in TV is very has always served me well. And I'm sure it does in lots of jobs because... Lots of people I've worked with, whether it's Russell Brand or Ben Shepherd, who went to my school, or Corden, the West Ham kind of thread always helps you because you've got something to talk about. So leaving university, I gather you got your, your first job in your early 20s, 2021, something like that. Yeah, 20, yeah, probably just after 21. As I mentioned, I sent loads of letters out. Was that immediately after you finished university or did yes. you have some time? Yeah, I, immediately I wanted to work. So I sent lots of letters out to various production companies and eventually my letter landed on the table of a lovely lady called Angela Ferreira who was running a music show called The Ozone at the BBC. I remember it. Yeah, I do remember it. There were two presenters, uh, Jamie Theakes and Jane Middlemiss. They did The Ozone and they'd interview cool bands and kind of be on the pulse of music. And I started off doing work experience at The Ozone where I would just help out on shoots and around the office if you needed scripts photocopied or if you needed coffee got or if you needed uh, you know equipment carried i do all of those things i sometimes run tapes between the various bbc houses so i did that for for about six weeks and that was just being i was lucky really because it's really difficult for people to come to london and earn a living uh, straight away on tv i was yes. lucky that my parents lived in chigwell so i could jump on the tube every day and the work experience only paid for that tube travel so i'd go up back and forth to my parents and I'd work at the Ozone whereas other people who don't have people who live in London it's extremely difficult yeah uh, it's even now today London is the epicenter of the entertainment business in the UK anyway but I suppose much like LA is in in the US obviously you spent you sent out lots and lots of letters the feeling that you you obviously got a positive one back and that must have been a great feeling right because I suppose persistence is behind that yeah really exciting I felt 
It was harder then. I mean, you mentioned earlier about knowing people in media. I didn't know anybody in media. So it was a harder jump to know what to do and who to who to kind of reach out to. And it was the only really way of finding out was The Guardian used to do the media section. And I remember the big breakfast needed interns and, you know, Channel 4 would need interns. And I gathered as thousands and thousands of people would apply for those. And I remember filling in those forms and writing those ideas and I never felt very confident in my stuff. And you often got rejection letter. But I was lucky to get the ozone because it kind of set me on a path where I did work experience there and then someone else needed work experience at the BBC, which there was a channel called Choice, I think. So I went to work on BBC Choice, which is at Wood Lane and kind of did work experience there. So I kind of did four months work experience bouncing around at the BBC before I got my first job, which was at MTV as an intern. And so you cut your teeth doing internship. And when you saw the MTV gig advertised, was it just an entry-level production? Yes, it was It was an intern. I can't remember. I think I just sent, my, I sent various letters. I had two previous interviews at VH1, uh, which I didn't get for an internship. And I finally got one at Oxford Circus for MTV UK with a lovely lady called Esther and Lisa. And they... I did the interview. I turned up in a suit, which is the most opposite thing you can do for MTV because nobody ever there ever wears a suit at MTV. And Ned got my letter and got my CV that I put together and um, I got a job, which was thrilling. I bet. So you were still living at home at that point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, still commuting in. And uh, so tell me about the job. Yeah, that was the start of everything, really. I did the internship was £150 a week. Um, and it's a six month internship where I was doing uh, I was the intern for the news team. So I worked with two producers with Mark and Lisa, who were doing Daily Edition, which was a news show. Uh, and it's a daily news music entertainment show. They were two producers and I was the intern. So I'd do anything they needed, really. I'd get tapes for them. I would, you know, get scripts for them. I would print things for them. So anything they needed, I'd do. I was also working on a show called Weekend Edition. I didn't have MTV, but even I knew of the Weekend Edition. Oh, yeah, not many people had MTV. That's the funny thing. Back then, not many people had it. You're kind of a gopher. You're kind of doing whatever you want to, whatever people need, which I loved because I was in amongst it. It was a cool place to work. There's TVs on the walls everywhere. There's, you know, Britney Spears playing and Eminem playing on the TVs all the time. And it felt like, you know, a wonderful place to work. And what was brilliant about MTV, I was there for six months and then I got, they extended me and I became a researcher. And what was brilliant was everyone was young. So you could kind of, you know, it was a, everyone had a similar vibe to them. You could do whatever you wanted to do within the walls of MTV. And I was very keen to learn. And I just kind of pushed and pushed and asked and helped. And eventually they said, oh, you can, you know, you can cover this shoot for me or you can do this shoot for me or you can you know, do, help me with this script. So within six months, I was kind of producing shows for people and kind of helping out wherever they needed. And I'd still be doing my internship, but also doing as much as I could off the back of it. Because it's, it was, I compare my time at MTV to a playground because you were just learning and playing and doing whatever you wanted, really. And nobody really watched and nobody really minded what you did <laughs> well that, that's no, that sounds that sounds ideal which i i suppose anyone listening that sounds like the dream probably this idea where you you go into the media or or something that looks quite sexy and entertaining on the outside but you get there and it actually is 
yeah. and you have the opportunity to to kind of have some real input into shows. So that was that like the early two thousands, maybe. Yes, yeah, two thousand one, maybe. You're talking maybe Russell Brand was was working at MTV at that well, point. Well, when I first started, it was there was a show called Select, which was a daily show with Donna Air and Richard Blackwood, two big names in the early nineties yeah. in the UK. So they were they were first, and then I was there for a little while. So the next kind of wave was Emma Ledden uh, and Tim Cash and Alex Zane and Dave Berry. There was kind of a new wave of people came in. Russell Brand came in, and then there was Cat Dealey and Edith Bowman were doing shows. So it was like it was a everyone was kind of as I said, everyone was kind of the same age, and we all shared. We we're all passionate about making stuff, and even if it was looking back, some of it was probably rubbish, uh, definitely rubbish. And you know, some was fun and creative and inventive. There wasn't much money, and what I found the, the difference, and I'm sure we'll talk about this about US and the UK is that you learn to do much more here in the UK because you're scraping around for money. So your skill set's bigger and you learn how to... I remember one shoot I was doing. There was a, there was a nightclub in Leicester Square called Sound Republic, which was essentially kind of MTV's nightclub, or I used it a lot. And we had NSYNC come in. And NSYNC were obviously a phenomenon in the US and very big in the UK. But because there was no money they kind of sent me to do this shoot and I was I had a camera I had the audio equipment I had lights uh, and I was also asking the questions so I was kind of doing everything it was essentially a one man band so I was miking Justin Timberlake and all of his mates all of his bandmates, and lighting it very badly uh, and it was a big echoey room and I think like that still it was probably awful it probably sounded bad looked bad and it was me asking a question so it was all a shambles but that still went on air <laughs> Because it had to. And nobody went, that is dreadful. Everyone went, yeah, it's just TV. Just so put it on air. You're in a small team. You're in a job that you love. Were you an intern still at this point? You, you I, got I your probably first... moved into research by that stage. So but it was two... very early days. Okay, so it's your first proper job, let's yeah, say. Yeah. And here you are, miking up one of the biggest boy bands on the planet. The adrenaline must have been pumping. It was. It was It was always thrilling. We did, we did shoots with Britney Spears and Kylie Minogue and all of these stars and I just it was we were just making it all up <laughs> but working hard we worked really hard like I worked such long hours because I loved it but we were making a lot of stuff up and you, you're surrounded by other people who are making things up and just hoping for the best and often it was really good because you all shared you know that you always everybody wanted it to be good and fun and I, I absolutely loved it so I did not mind putting in the hours we all kind of the social aspect of it was amazing everyone would go out together you lived together essentially you'd do seven sometimes you'd do seven days a week long hours and you didn't mind because you're just with your mates doing something you really enjoy doing and then you'd all go to a pub and do more stuff you'd enjoy doing so it's kind of a loop it was a loop of really fun hard work learning lessons but also getting loads of lessons like the things I got to do there I don't think there's much TV now that gives you the opportunities that I had. And even for, I think about the presenters, live TV is such a skill set. And there's not really much TV, especially now there's no kids TV really like there was. And MTV doesn't have the same kind of anarchy that it used to. You don't get a chance to learn like you used to learn. Um, and it was all hands on deck. And I suppose it's, it was almost the antithesis of BBC One where I assume everything is more formalised and, yes. and you were representing that kind of 
X culture, which I suppose now doesn't really exist because you have the internet, you have YouTube and you have TikTok stars and and whatnot. But MTV was it. It's hard to emphasize how much MTV was such a cultural phenomenon back in the day. And you were at the center of it. Holding on. Holding on. (laughs) on But yeah, so, so Russell Brand, he came in for a spell. We did a show called Dance Floor Chart, which was the most anarchic show we did really because we'd go to a Bristol nightclub or to a Sheffield nightclub all the big we go to Cream we go to all the big nightclubs and we would interview people who are off their minds <laughs> and then it was it was a chart show essentially so we'd have a segment where Russell would be interviewing someone whose eyes were going like disco balls uh, and then we'd go into number nine on a chart so it's like it was a crazy time and there was a Russell had this writer called Matt Morgan, who was has a brilliant mind. So they used to concoct some absolute insanity together to do in these nightclubs. But we were young and it was just fun to be there filming. It's like four in the morning filming in a nightclub with people off their chops. Brilliant. So you were MTV, you were a researcher. And then did you like build up your skill set to the point where you, you became freelance? Or, or was that something that was more of a gradual process and you, you got another job, at another production company? Well, I did. I was at MTV for a few years. And during that time, I did lots of live shows. I did a show called Dirty Sanchez, which was a Welsh jackass, which I was kind of filming on. It was one of the camera guys on it. It, it was called a, a shooting cameraman, I think, where you kind of produce and shoot. And I did lots of live stuff. I went to America with Busted, the boy band. Uh, where we did kind of now it's a reality constructed reality show which wasn't really a thing then so I had so much experience in so many different things whether it's kind of documentary and live tv and and other other worlds and I uh, it was time for me to move on so I went to sorry how, how old are you roughly about this point I want to say 25 I guess so like four years at MTV um, and I went to do Extra Factor which was a sister show to X Factor and it was hosted by Ben Shepherd. And uh, I'd known him from school a little bit. He was a few years, but he was a very talented man a few years above me at school who was very good at everything and still is and a lovely, lovely guy. Uh, and he was hosting the Extra Factor. And it was back when I did, we did season two, I believe. And it was back when Extra Factor was more fun, silly, you know, tongue in cheek. And then I think as the years progressed, it became a bit more serious, like a companion show rather than taking the mick out of the main show. Well, as, as X Factor grew, right, it's, it's, it still is one of the biggest shows in the world. So I did that for a year uh, as a producer, which was really interesting to come outside of MTV and step into that structure because it was a lot more formal and the structure was always already set and you kind of, you were just a producer rather than doing everything. So it's learning how to step back a little bit and just to produce. We did a weekly show uh, and there was another producer called Meriel Bill and we kind of flip-flopped on shows. You'd, you'd focus on that show and get in the content for that show. And to be part of a massive machine like X Factor was a real eye-opener, really. So was that, was that on the South Bank ITV? No, we were at Fremantle at Talkback on Tottenham Court Road. And then we did the live shows, which at Fountain Studios in Wembley. Okay, and so like on a day-to-day basis, you were in charge please correct me if I'm wrong, but getting guests, making sure that the scripts were in, in place. I guess we would, we'd, ha- we'd have a team booking guests and we would kind of okay what guests we wanted. I'd, I'd have a rundown every week, a running order every week and I'd have, right, we're going to open with Ben doing this and then we're going to have a, we'd have a little videotape package of 
something silly we had done. That would we did, for instance, an idea where we used pre-existing footage of guests of people of contestants who had come on, and we replaced the judges with Sooty and Sweep. For instance, oh no, it was George Bungle and Zippy. And were these ideas you were coming up with yes. directly? Yeah, so you were constantly churning out ideas, um, some of which worked, some of which didn't work, but that was kind of the way it went and the nature of the beast. So you'd fill an hour's worth of content with some live stuff, some stuff you'd pre recorded, you know, a competition. So you, you had a structure you kind of stuck to each week uh, and you'd just kind of place what you thought works in the various parts. Mm -hmm. And um, how did you find that then going from something which sounded quite free and, you know, all hands on deck, doing lots of different things from directing to writing to producing to maybe even presenting occasionally uh, to something that was a bit more rigid and a bit more, I suppose, structured as a job? Uh, it It was just interesting to suddenly be part of this massive machine. And it those shows... Those reality shows are huge machines. And there are, you suddenly realise there's a lot of people doing lots of jobs. Um, and you get to stick in your lane more, which again is something that is relevant to my time in America. But whereas MTV, you were just doing everything. You know, you'd be asking questions, as I say, you'd be filming, you'd be lighting. And here, you're suddenly just producing. You could concentrate just on producing. And we were a sister show to X Factor, so you'd also get to watch those guys and how they worked and... How, to, how a show as big as X Factor kind of, how the wheels keep turning. And this is, again, this is conjecture. In MTV, it was a bit, maybe a bit more playful. Extra Factor, even though I suppose it was a bit more of a light-hearted version of the X Factor, a bit more serious, perhaps? Did there seem to be more gravitas? A little bit. We, I guess we came in at a good stage, which was, it was still a silly, a silly sister show. It was quite a good stepping stone because the eyes of ITV and Simon Cowell weren't fully on our show yet. So it's still a chance for us to be silly and do silly stuff. And so there was never any real moments where we dropped the ball that I can remember. And also you find in those in that world you get caught up in the drama bit. So Shane Ward won. He won that year. I think it's him, Shane Ward. He won that year. Like you, it was, it was an exciting moment. And I'm not a reality TV show fan. I don't really like that world of things. But I appreciate it and understand that people love it. And you can easily get caught up in that in that world. We were kind of quite naughty, which in my eyes is what we're meant to be. We're meant to be a little bit like the little brothers, a bit annoying. Sure, a bit um, cheeky. A, a bit cheeky. Sure, yeah. So it's anything we did as you know, wasn't quite right. It was just kind of an eye roll rather than a stern ticking off <laughs> coming out of those guys again yeah apparently used to work for MTV so I was just uh, <laughs> just ignoring so uh, when you're progressing through your career uh, you worked at MTV The Extra Factor were you starting to really develop your skills and coming up with ideas from scratch and then seeing them to fruition that's obviously something that's kind of become quite a, an integral part of your job especially today Again, correct me if I'm wrong, from Extra Factor, you, you went on to work on um, lots of different ent- light entertainment shows, comedy shows, Take Me Out, Never Mind the Buzzcocks, which is a music quiz, Alan Carr's Chatty Man. Was that all part of the same production company or because you're starting to make connections go from one to the other? I was bouncing around. So you do, the, the great thing about being freelance is that you get to meet other people, work through other executives, you know, meet other producers, meet other production managers. And so they go on to, everyone splits on to another job uh, and then other jobs need other producers. So you'd end up saying, oh, do you want to come and do this? You'd come and do it. And suddenly you've got options in your career to go to places. I stayed at Talkback for a little bit. I did, I did Extra Factor and I did, there was another show, a celebrity-based show, which was 
X Factor as well, Subsea X Factor, that I did a, a version of. I think it's good to make mistakes in your career because you learn what you don't like doing. And I think one of the things, in fact, it's, quite, it's not a mistake, but I did go on to do the Sharon Osbourne show, which was a daytime show, which I realised I didn't like doing t- daytime shows after doing a stint on that. And then I, what I really came back to was everything I liked doing was had a thread of comedy throughout it. So I wanted to focus on shows which had that thread. So after my Sharon Osbourne stint, and it was no fault of anyone on that show or Sharon herself, uh, it just wasn't for me. Um, and after I thought I'm only doing stuff that have comedy, you know, veins. And I ended up going to, which was one of my favourite jobs, the Friday Night Project uh, as a producer, which was great because it had all the funny things I liked within it. It had kind of a, a monologue, had a big celebrity monologue at the top. It would have a little quiz in it. It had a hidden camera prank. That was a really good job for me in terms of the next step of learning. Yeah, right. So this is, if I remember right, it was on Channel 4, was yeah. it? And it was... Um quite a lot of parallels to what you do now in terms of the the audience and the time that that was on like a late night comedy yeah. thing um although it was only on once a, a week obviously yes. uh, on a friday well, how did that so that was that just in a case of you knowing someone or there was there was a rumor that um there was a, a production or producer needed for the show and you 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 had a word so i guess the email was fully up and running then yeah. <laughs> and this is this is mid 2000s mid 2000s right yeah um I I had people I I can't remember how I got that job but I knew people had worked on it had worked in previous seasons and once it's quite a small world TV so word will get out that they've got a new season coming up so a new series coming up so you, you know your friend who worked on it you'd say put in a word for you for me or you'd send your CV to the exec there but lots of the freelance world is from meeting previous people and them going on and kind of that the kind of threads of that from one production 20 people go on to different productions so it, sometimes you'll go on to one of those sometimes you go to another one so you open the door for other people and you do get to a stage where you know whether this is good or whether it's bad you hire when you get to stage you're hiring people you hire people you know and you trust because you know they're going to do a good job for you and which closes the door for some people but opens the door for other people so it's a strange dynamic now but yes it's i guess friday night project i wanted to work on that show and i kind of asked people to put a word in for me i had an interview i knew it was for friday night project but the two execs would not say it was for the friday night projects who had quite a weird kind of secret interview <laughs> where they were being really cryptic and i was going this sounds is mysterious yeah. yeah i know what this is for and i eventually got the producer job on that and you're you're right. I had lots of parallels to what I do now. It would have a big star host in it. Whether it's funnily enough, I had Kanye West do it. This is good Kanye, not bad Kanye. Uh, I had Mariah Carey host, uh, and then it would have lots of British hosts. Simon Pegg, which was one of my favourites, so I love. You and the team would base the show around that celebrity. So if it was Simon Pegg, you'd do a, a prank based around something in Simon Pegg's life. You'd do a quiz based on him. So everything was kind of based and themed to that celebrity each week. So every week was a new challenge so i mean you're you're talking some huge names now so this is probably the first maybe the first time in your career you're you're regularly working with a-listers yeah. is that is that fair yes and and also we would we'd have like Kirsty and phil from location 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 i mean so they're, they're all... a-listers as far as i'm concerned <laughs> i think kirsty gone down a wormhole of uh, q hasn't she gone quite dark uh, I, I i just i'd like to stick to her uh, location 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 i don't i don't want to go down that rabbit hole
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. This is Something in Media. I'm Dave Maguire. And we're listening to the story of how James Longman became the exec producer at The Late Late Show with James Corden, one of the world's biggest entertainment shows. Before the break, James discussed the idea of basing entertainment formats around celebrity guests. And we go on to find out exactly how James deals with A-list celebs. With, with those kinds of talent, did that come naturally to you in terms of your personality? And uh, as a producer, I suppose you're, 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 you're two people, right? You're, you want them to have a good time, enjoy themselves, but you're also trying to push them, aren't yeah. you? Trying to, to be the best they can. So did you find that came naturally to you? No, I, and I still feel that I'm still finding that all these years in, finding the right balance between being pushy and, you know, making sure they have a good time. I think what we've done on Corden, and I've been there for seven years now, is built up such a good relationship with celebrities and stars who come on the show that they trust us to do a good job for them. And they come and they have a good time and hopefully we'll make a really good sketch or something fun with them. Uh, and it'll do really well for them and their film and they'll go away going I'll do something with those guys again and sometimes you'll get pushed back from a subject going I don't want to do that and you're like oh but that would be really funny how do I work this but finding that balance isn't easy because some people are like why would you ask me again and other people are like oh okay mate they're into it maybe I trust them to do it and, and you'll get it over the line but it's very difficult I'm not naturally an overly confident person and I, I never have been in my work but I think people trust me and I'm hopefully quite likeable, so they sense that in me. So I think, like, getting that across is, you know, that they can trust me and I'm not trying to do them over. And that's been a key thing on lots of things I do. There's no point pulling the wool over the eyes of a celebrity because if you do, then they won't trust you. So you've always got to work with them. It's just how much you can kind of manoeuvre degrees. Such an interesting point, I think, that it mostly is about trust. You know, you can you can learn how to technically do something edit record something on a camera organize a team but that that trust and that personality when you're working closely with somebody i think is quite undervalued actually and the point that you make in terms of rebooking them getting them to do something that they normally wouldn't do it's not mutually exclusive is it i suppose you can you can do that both at the same time yeah yeah and we get we've got such a rhythm on on cordon now and also i found that with your hosts as well generally pushing them to do something they don't want to do never works out whether it is a presenter on mcv who you try and do a game that he didn't want to do or whether it's pushing call to do something he doesn't really want to do it never really works out because their heart's not in it so you've got to find somewhere in between and hopefully you know they'll trust you and they'll make it really good i think about the only time i feel like 
I've got called and say something he really didn't want to do was me and the head, one of the head writers, Ian Carmel, who is one of the funniest, loveliest men I know and most talented. We had an idea. Do you know it was Mar- uh, Marie Kondo who did the... Uh, the, the, the house... The clean-up clean, thing. What's on Netflix. Tidy Up. No, not Tidy Up. I can't remember what her show's called. But she did that... I haven't got the internet. I would have Googled she it. Did, she did that show uh, on Netflix where it's, it's t- getting rid of anything because it didn't bring you joy. And we had Jean-Claude Van Damme coming on. And I think Ian pitched the idea that Jean-Claude Van Damme would play her role and anything that didn't bring him joy, he would, <laughs> he would, he would drop kick. And so we end up pushing Gordon to do a sketch. There's that with Jean-Claude Van Damme that is actually I'm, it's very funny <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I haven't seen it but that's the first thing I'm going to do when I get home I'm going to I'm going to if that's on YouTube it's a funny sketch and the funny thing about Jean-Claude Van Damme is he's also very specific about what he wants to do and we had this breakable all these breakable vases and things for him like to kick and to chop uh, in this sketch and for some reason, he wanted to do it how he wanted to do it. So he picks up this vase. Instead of, like, kicking it, he slams it into his forehead. And this breakaway... Even though they're breakaway, they still hurt. <laughs> so by the end of a sketch, he's got this massive bump forming in the middle of his forehead. <laughs> and, and then he kind of... And then we had to do one more setup, and he was, like, done. He goes, no, nope, it's a wrap. Thanks, everyone. And I just walked out. And it was, like, wow. a wonderful moment. Wow, fantastic. I mean, you must have but so But he many- did it. I mean, he did the sketch. It must be, uh, we'll come to this um, very soon, but it must be so surreal for that to be happening right in front of you. Yeah. Thinking this is one of the biggest action stars, you know, I mean, definitely back in the 90s and and noughties, but even now, you know, he's such a huge name, just doing something like that and um, doing something that you've probably created. Something really dumb. In your head. But that's great. That must be so fun. (laughs) Hard work, but quite satisfying as well. It is satisfying. Lots of things we do. I'm very lucky in that. I've got a great team around me and the writers are super smart and the ideas are brilliant. And then I've got a, a team that can make those ideas brilliant. So there's things you do that are big and showy and fun. And there's other things that are less showy, but you're more proud of. And there's lots of things like that. Jean-Claude Van Damme sketch is just silly and funny and exactly <laughs> what I like doing. Okay, so you you were working, you, you're now, for want of a better term, climbing the ladder in terms of production, getting well-known in, in London, working with these big names. Let's fast forward a little bit. So late, maybe the late noughties, were you kind of going from a, a new, fresh producer into more seasoned producer, maybe even exec roles at that point? Yeah, I was, do- I was doing lots of series producing. So I eventually series produced Friday Night Project and then went on to do Alan Carr Chatty Man. And I did the pilot for Take Me Out with Paddy McGuinness. It obviously became a huge hit. And I had a reputation for doing those kind of comedy shows so people would trust me to come and do a good job for them. So I did the Rob Bryden show with uh, another mentor of mine called Dave Morley, a lovely man called Dave Morley. And it was very... In- they were all kind of talky shows, some with little sketchy bits in, some without but mainly with funny people. Alan Carr is one of the funniest people around. Rob Bryden was brilliant. I was lucky to work with lots of these big stars. I did one big show with Ant and Deck, which is called Push the Button, which was more game showy. I enjoyed, but it was hard, and the kind of game sort of thing didn't interest me as much as, as perhaps other things. But as I said earlier, you kind of, as you go along, you learn what you don't like and what you do like. And Ant and Deck are brilliant and obviously superstars, but that kind of show wasn't quite 
the kind of show I like doing. Which, you know, I suppose anyone in life, you, you got to do these things. It's not a, it's not a 10 yeah. every single, every single day. But as a series producer, what was the main difference between what you were doing and what you were doing, taking that step up? I assume more of an overview. of everything. Yes, an overview. Sometimes you'd have two producers below you. So you'd make sure both teams are, lots of times you're dealing with the talent, whether it's Alan Carr or Bryden or whoever, and making sure they're happy with everything and making sure they know what direction we're going in and what we're doing in the show. Uh, and then it's just making sure... Well, I've always been lucky in that the people I've hired know what they're doing and are smart and often more capable than me. And there's that saying, isn't there, to surround yourself with smart people, which helps you out. So I've, I've, I've always had a team that can do what I need them to do and I can trust to do it and I don't I don't really believe in micromanaging I've always been you're in to do this job you can do this job so it is more of an overview you're making sure on something like Buzzcocks you're making sure the guests are right for the coming weeks you're dealing with a celebrity booker you're making sure you know you're ticking off the ideas so you know you can step back a little bit more and just you know have a view as you say an overview of everything uh, and see what a plan is rather than just kind of the day to day and did you enjoy that more or was it just different? It was just different, really. I mean, I love being hands-on. So sometimes you can be a little bit frustrated if a show isn't as good as you want it to be because there's always a part of you going, maybe I could have done this a bit better. But that's rare, really. I think generally you're surrounded by talented people and it's fun and you trust them and they make a good show. And the beauty of all of these shows is, and again, I consider myself very lucky, is that entertainment serves a purpose but it's not life or death. Yeah. So if you make a mistake in a show or something isn't very good, you just move on really. And, and particularly on the joy of Corden is that we do four shows a week. And if you had something goes wrong in one show, the next show, you're back to doing what you need to do and it's fine. So you kind of move on so quickly because you've got no time to reflect really. Yeah. And the weekly shows, you have a bit more time to reflect, but you are again, just making comedy entertainment. You're not making documentaries about serious subjects. Uh, I was, I listened to an interview with Conan O'Brien, the American host. He, he did a similar type of show before he stepped down. Genius. And he was talking about the, yes, it is a lot of pressure to pump out that much material day in, day out. But as you say, it's uh, what you call in the UK fish and chip paper the next the, yeah. the next day. It's, you can just wipe the slate clean. And there's something quite quite satisfying about that, I suppose. Yeah, there really is. The speed with which you have to work and the pace, you don't have much time to kind of sit around and kind of stroke your chin. You're just like, next. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was rubbish, next. Yeah. Yeah, and you but- have those moments where everyone's trying to do their best and you have those moments where something isn't as good as you want it to be or you and you're disappointed with it and you know maybe James is unhappy with something and the, the other execs are unhappy with something but you just have to go okay we move on yeah yeah and dust I sp- yourself down move on I suppose that's what you're there for too right yeah having a bit of that perspective and yeah calming everyone and yeah being the um can I say the grown-up in the room yes yeah I think so because you do have to be as young as you always think you are, you do have to, you're, it's still a job and people are still paying you to do things and you still, in fact, talking about the series producer and the executive producer changes, I'm kind of run, I run the creative side according, but I also have like, I'm a comfort blanket. So if something goes wrong or people are worried, they can come to me and go, I'm worried about this and I'll fix those problems. And I'm not a shouter. I'm not someone who would just scream and be furious about things. I'll just try and fix things. So being a comfort blanket is kind of a is part of my role now. Do I have the term professional problem solver? It is. It's exactly that. You're solving problems, and and they are 
often quite fun problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're not, but they are probably still like in the day to day stresses of the job, they are still problems that you have to fix. And sometimes you're spinning so many plates and you're dealing with, you know, the host of the show, you're dealing with a celebrity, and you're dealing with their agents, you're dealing with someone else's agents, you're dealing with your team and execs. And, you know, you're in the middle of this kind of storm. And you're just trying to keep your head above water. And nine times out of ten you do and it's all okay. And everyone's... I've often found that people in the moment will be furious and then ten minutes later they'll be fine. <laughs> yep, yep, 100%. I've, I've been there many times. Yeah. And it's uh, if you're in the middle, yeah. it's your job to be the calming influence, I guess. Yeah. And, and So let's let's talk about the, the big switch, right? If I can call it that. Yeah. UK exec producer carved a, a really impressive name into the industry over here you've dealt with some huge talent british talent at least but also i assume some global talent but you were up in the edinburgh festival yes and you bumped into ben ben winston ben winston who's the exec producer who's a co-founder sorry of full well 73 yes. which yeah. is the production company of, of the late late show and you ask him a question Yes, I said to him, so Corden kicked off in 2014. Is my maths right there? Yeah, 2014. So it kicked off about April 2014. And there was a part of me that was annoyed I wasn't part of it. (laughs) Is it because you saw a group of English producers taking something so huge? Yes, I think so. But also Jimmy Kimmel and Fallon and that always used to do the viral sketches that were really funny and I always would be like I wish I was doing something like that so there's a huge part of me that said when that launched and I knew James a little bit I didn't know Ben very well I knew James a little bit I said a bit annoyed they haven't asked me to go and help him with it and as the months progressed and I'd been on air I think four or five months Ben was at the Edinburgh Festival and I bumped into him I can't remember I verbally said oh whether I text him but I said if you ever need anyone, think of me. And was this a TV... TV festival, festival. yeah. So Edinburgh do, yeah. Edinburgh do a comedy festival for a month yeah. and a weekend as all the TV Muppets go up there <laughs> and go and watch new comedy and talk about TV and blah, 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 blah. And all the comedians are probably excited but also bored by these people because they have it every year. And so the TV, there's a TV festival where you have talks and everything. So I went up to that as, as a talkback Thames at Talkback with an amazing guy called Leon Wilson kind of helping run that company which was one of my favourite jobs ever but it was no reflection on that job but I loved the idea of going to work on an American late night show so I spoke to him or texted him and said if you ever need someone think of me and that was kind of on a Friday or a Saturday and then it, it was as soon as the following kind of Monday or Tuesday where he called and said would you consider coming to work in America and I was like well, yes I w- would consider it and I think that I've never in my life been very forthright with what I want. I'm, all, I'm very British in that I want to be asked. And one of the biggest lessons I can give people is ask the question. Always ask the question. Because someone can only ever say no. I asked the question and I would never have been working on that show in LA within five months what if did, I hadn't have asked it. How did it feel to get that reply? It was amazing. I mean, it was, I mean, it was thrilling. It was scary. It was daunting because we, I was, I was recently married recently bought a house so we kind of it was a big upheaval to move to Los Angeles which is a daunting place to move to but within uh, by the end of December I asked in mid-August I guess by the end of December my visa had gone through and I think January the 4th I started on the James Gordon show that's incredible so in your own words you're doing one of the best jobs you'd ever done Running a production company? Yeah, I was helping run Talkback with Leon Wilson and, and Simon Craig. Yeah, it was really fun. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> running one of the biggest production companies, never mind comedy production, but one of the biggest production companies. Yeah, we were on a journey together, that company, and I left too soon in that journey. Uh, but it was too, Leon understood as well, it's too good an opportunity to turn down. Of course. And so literally in three, four months, you were in the epicenter of the entertainment world, LA. Was it Was it a bit of a whirlwind relocating? It really was. There's, there's, there's so much admin to do that you never thought about. <laughs> so, like, there's so much, yeah. Just the admin of it all was a nightmare. Yeah. And I went out for a few months to first uh, solo to see if, you know, if it was right for us because it, it could have been a disaster. And my wife came out and we, you know, it, within six months we were there. We were renting a house. We were, I was working, doing these, this daily show with big YouTube, like big figures on YouTube. It was, yeah, it was a world. It was amazing. Yep. Does your wife work in media entertainment? No, she is. In fact, we met on Extra Factor all those years ago. At the time, she was the editor of Good Housekeeping, food editor of Good Housekeeping. And then she came out here and she's re- she's still involved in the food world and she's got an Instagram that she does her food recipes on and fun food areas. So she's kind of, she's been a mum for a few years, so she's just kind of finding her feet. But she's brilliant in, the, in everything food eat. In terms of your previous career and what you do now... Are you, are you still excited? Are you still nervous? Are you, are, are you still learning as you go? Or would you say that you've you kind of reached the, uh, I suppose, like the pinnacle in your, you're just in the comfort zone? Well, it's a good question, actually. I guess I was, I'm less nervous now doing things than I used to because I trust my team. And I know that if we have an idea, they're so good at making it. So I'm, I'm less nervous. Occasionally, I come up with nerves we did a huge Tom Cruise shoot where James and Tom flew in an airplane together in a fighter jet, which Tom Cruise was a pilot and James was a passenger. That was pretty scary, making sure that all worked. And, you know, actually scary in terms of people's lives. <laughs> right. I mean, um, the health and safety, you know, in terms of a form, sometimes, especially at the BBC, for example, is a joke because you've got to jump through some hoops, even to, I don't know, slice an onion. Yeah. Right. I can't even imagine the hoops you'd have to go through to get James Corden up in an airplane flown by Tom Cruise yeah. for, uh, let's just say, an international TV show that's yeah. going to be viewed multiple millions of times. Yeah. What, yeah, yeah, what was going through your head? I think, well, we did... A, we did Tom Cruise is brilliant, is that he, he pushes us as a team to do more and more and more. And it's kind of a, it was a third shoot we'd done with him. The second one was a skydive, where they skydive together. I've seen that, yeah. Um, and... CBS insurance were like there's no way we're doing this and somehow we got over the line and then the third one I think Tom texted James saying do you want do you want me to you know do you want to come up in a jet with me okay, so, sorry, can I, <laughs> so it came from Tom can I Cruise. just like trying to you know peek behind the curtain here when that happens when Tom Cruise texts James Corden two huge names right but you're exec producer you're one of the leaders of the show talk to James What's, what is that conversation like? I mean, is it kind of like, like WTF, should I do this? I, I'm really nervous. Is your role, I suppose, again, being the grown-up in the room, trying to say, like, yeah, it will be entertaining as, as shit, but... Yeah, I think that, funnily enough, we had this conversation recently where James was so nervous about doing that. I think he agreed with Tom, and then as it got closer and closer and closer, he got really nervous, understandably, because he was like, his point of view was like, He's an actor pretending to be a pilot. 
But he can, you know, he, he's got a Mustang that he flies over from Florida. He's a man who excels at everything he does. So if you're going to be in an actor's plane, it's not a bad actor to play in because he knows exactly what he's doing. And I went down to the desert uh, airport two days before to kind of do a scout, to do a recce, to check everything was the shots we needed. And we had this amazing moment where we're in this porter cabin and there was me and the, the director of photography and a guy who kind of makes sure the shots are right. And uh, Tom Cruise came in in like his flight suit and was showing us footage of what they'd shot to see if we were happy with it. And it was like literally being in Top Gun. So it was a real, kind of, <laughs> was a real like pitch, pinch myself moment as he was going, how does this shot look? And I was like, it looks amazing. <laughs> you know, it's going to be amazing. And I think that James got more and more nervous as we came close to the shoot. And uh, Ben Winston, who deals day to day with James on these, on most of these issues, I kind of, I texted Ben going, look, he's going to hate it, but it'll be the best thing he's ever done and the most exciting thing he's ever done. And Ben showed that to James and that pushed James over the line. So I think it was that that got him to it. And it was like, it was scary because the first plane he got in a Mustang, it's so claustrophobic and he was a passenger in it. So you have to get in, to get into it, you have to take the seat out, then you climb in, then you put a seat in. So it's a very, very enclosed space. And he got up and he did it and, you know, full credit to him. And Corden is so brilliant at knowing what's funny, you know, how to play those moments. Even when he was pooing himself, he was producing himself and doing the bits we needed him to, to do, like holding up a sign that says, help me and things like that. Like he, even in those moments, and it was petrifying, he can still do what he needs to do for the camera and knows how to do it. And he is just like the, the most talented person I've ever worked Because he's a writer as well. Obviously, yeah. um, those who know Gavin and Stacey, yeah. he's a co-writer on that, one of yeah. the most acclaimed uh, British sitcoms anyway so and I've heard you talk about the differences between producers and writers in the US you know in the in the UK producers kind of get their hands stuck in with the ideas a bit more perhaps yeah, than the sure. US whether it's more of a writer's thing they definitely are. is it a bit more British in the late late show in terms of how you do things um I think well we've got a team of writers we've got about 10 writers who are brilliant so they kind of split there's some monologue writers who um, write the jokes, the topical jokes every day that James comes out and does it at the top. Then uh, there's a team that kind of do the sketch side of things. So if we've got Ryan Reynolds coming on or if we've got Brian Cranston coming on, they'll come up with a batch of ideas for James to do with those guys, which I'll then go through and then picture James. So the creative force in the US is mainly the writers. I'm helpful in that I've been able to straddle a little bit of both there and I can I know which ideas work and which won't work I kind of know not always and the producers can be a little bit more nuts and bolts so we've got a producer who will go right we need to schedule this and we'll do that and we'll do that and we'll do that and they'll help make sure the creative is what the writers and we want it to be whereas in the UK there really is kind of a there's a bit more of a scrappy sensibility where producers come with ideas I know on the panel shows it's lots of it is, is writer related but a producer might come up with a new idea for a round, which the writers would then kind of add to. You're a two-time Emmy Award winner, eight times nominated. Yes. You're an executive producer of one of the biggest shows in the world on TV. You've worked with the likes of President Biden, Tom Cruise, Oprah Winfrey. You've been involved in so many other stuff apart from The Late Late Show, Friends Reunion Show, which is a huge hit, a, a massive, massive deal. Jonah Brothers, Family Roast for Netflix, Carpool Karaoke... How often do you reminisce? We're currently in, in, a, in an outhouse in the, the British countryside. 
thousands of miles away from, from LA, nearer to your roots in East London, Essex. Do you pinch yourself? I consider myself very lucky to still be doing what I really enjoy doing. I don't think I ever really sit down and pat myself on the back because I feel, I get, the term is imposter syndrome, isn't it? That you always feel, God, not somebody's going to notice. So I'd never really sit down and go, oh, well done me, which perhaps occasionally I should do. But it is just part of my, I think part of the reason I get by it is because of that. <laughs> and it's, it's very difficult to kind of sit down and just go, oh, well done on everything I've done. I think I've done lots of really good things. Uh, and I consider myself fortunate to have done them. Um, and I hope they continue. And one stage, maybe I'll stop and go, oh, that was pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> but I'm still so excited. You know, the funny thing is I'm still so excited about... I met Mark Noble in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> I've met him. He's a lovely guy, He's a isn't lovely he? Guy. He's super nice. I'm not a West Ham James Longman and how he became something in media. How has James carved out such an amazing career? We'll get further insight from our in-house careers advisor via our website at somethingin.media. We can glean a deeper understanding of what it takes to make it in the world of media and even the opportunity to book sessions. Please sign up for our newsletter. You'll find the link on our website. Something In Media is a stable production. And if you enjoyed listening, please follow us by pressing the subscribe button or follow button wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone may benefit by listening to these types of stories, please do let them know where to find us. 